Welcome back. Pleasure to be uh, speaking to you this evening from the Bible, God's Word. My name is Matt Carvel, one of the uh, elders here at Emmanuel. And uh, if this is your first time with us, you've joined us at a good moment because we're starting uh, a new series today uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Most of the year, actually, uh, in this church, we'll be going through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which is all uh, about Jesus' life, what he did, what he said. And we're going to be focusing in uh, on that today. And uh, specifically over these next few weeks, we're talking about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous sermon uh, that has been ever delivered in history. And uh, one of the reasons why it has lasted the test of time and one of the reasons why we have chosen uh, to, to speak on it and spend some time in it, other than the fact that it's from Jesus and therefore makes it important. But actually what we'll see is that Jesus wants to speak to real life. He wants to speak to real issues uh, that people at the time uh, experienced, but also we experience um, right now in the time that, that we live. You might think when we come to do a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, these ancient words, 2,000 years ago, Jesus gathered uh, some people. Jesus had begun his ministry and was teaching in the, in the temples and, and uh, healing people and, and crowds had begun to gather. And in that context, Jesus gets his close followers, his disciples, and sort of retreats a little bit up a hillside and then delivers uh, what has been come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. And you might think, especially if you're new to church or this kind of environment, you think, well, what relevance does that have to me and what I'm going through uh, today? Well, actually, what we see when we look at this passage and what Jesus had to say is that, well, he's speaking into things that we experience, and uh, you'll see that. Sermon on the Mount includes topics uh, like relationships, like marriage, uh, money, uh, people in power and people in need, emotions, uh, anger, anxiety. These are all things that we experience and they experience then. Why? Because they're human issues. And they're real to us, and they're important to us. And again, if you're well, if you're new to Christianity, you're new to the Bible, uh, or maybe if you're not, you might think that what the Bible really wants to say to us is some sort of higher level stuff. We think sometimes that spirituality is about well escaping the sort of tangible day-to-day -day things and getting up to a, some sort of higher level of spiritual truth that doesn't have much connection with how we live today and what we do and the decisions that we make day-to-day. But if you actually get into what the Bible says, what we see right the way through the Bible is that God is interested in the world. He's interested in how we live and what we do and the decisions that we make and what we prioritise and what that says about God and what that says about us and life itself. Sometimes we come to the Bible and kind of imagine, well, the earth, the world, what we do, that's, that's just like the backdrop. That's just, okay, where things happen, but it's not that important other than the, the spiritual meaning. But the backdrop is part of the story. Right from the beginning of the Bible, page one describes the creation of the world. Maybe that's surprising to you, or maybe it isn't. But when you think about it, and you think, well, this is a book all about God and what he's like and who he is, you might think the Bible should start off you know, in heaven, where God is, and just spend some time 
just describing God or God revealing himself in the context of heaven and his existence outside of the world. But actually, all of the Bible, 99% of what the Bible describes is about, yes, it's about God, but it's about God's interaction with his people and with people in the world. The world and how we respond to the world, our attitude to earthly existence is important to God. And before I go any further and really go into this passage specifically, let me underline that point and just help us to think about this Gospel of Matthew. Because we've been uh, doing some messages over the last few weeks from this book already. Uh, But just to remind you the purpose of Matthew writing his Gospel. As I've already said, Matthew was uh, someone who was writing, he wanted to write about Jesus and his life, but Matthew was a Jew and he was writing about a Jew, Jesus Christ, to primarily the audience that he had in mind was uh, the Jewish people. And that's important because he was writing about Jesus and wanted to present an honest and fair and real and true portrait of the things that Jesus did and what he said, but he was also wanting to show the connections to the the Jewish story, the Old Testament. And that, when you see those parallels, really underlines this point that I'm making, that God is interested in establishing a people in the world. That's important to God. We've already seen some key instances in Jesus' life. So if if you've not been with us, let me just recap The beginning of Matthew starts with Jesus, where Jesus came from, and uh, it talks about how he was born, but also talks about how he, well, his family had to escape through Egypt because there was uh, an evil king, an evil evil authority who wanted to, uh, well, basically kill him, stamp out this new king, Jesus, who had been born. And That's something that we might just read in the the New Testament and not realize the parallel. This is something that happened actually in the Old Testament in a very particular and specific way that's the same. One of the main uh, narrative stories in the Old Testament is is in the book of Exodus. And it's about God's saving his people. At the time of Exodus... Um, God's people were in a bad situation. They were slaves and they were oppressed by an evil king in Egypt. And he wanted to uh, suppress them, oppress them, and even at one time was uh, killing children, just like in Jesus' time. But what we see in the Exodus story, if if you've not come across it before, is that God does raise up a leader, Moses, to save the people, rescue them out of Egypt. So they come out of Egypt, but the first thing they encounter when they get out of Egypt is the Red Sea. It's right in front of them and they can't escape. And miraculously, one of the most famous Old Testament stories is Moses leading the people and God parted the sea and the people go through the water, as it were, to escape. And be saved from the Egyptians that are coming after them. And we've seen also in Jesus' life, after escaping through Egypt, the first thing Jesus does as he begins his ministry is he's baptized. He goes through the water. And then the week after, when we were doing our previous series, we saw how after Jesus' baptism, he goes into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he's tempted for 40 days. And if you know the Exodus story, after they go through the Red Sea, God's people end up in the wilderness for 40 years. The parallels are all there. And after 
they go through the wilderness because that's not where God wanted to leave them. He wanted them to take them to a new place, a new land that they would be able to flourish and prosper and know the blessing of God on them. He wanted to get them there, but before they got there, God wanted to prepare them and he wanted to instruct them. And he wanted to say, I, what's on my heart is to have a people in the world that know me and live according to my wisdom. And so I'm going to teach you, I'm going to prepare you. And that's the purpose of the Ten Commandments. If you know anything about the Bible, you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments. Well, that was when Moses went up a mountain and received some teaching and instruction from God, specifically uh, ten key things that the people were to follow as they went into this new land that God was preparing for them. But if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, and many of you hopefully are doing that in this church uh, this year as we go through, after Exodus, you get to some books that are a bit difficult for us. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in there, there are lots of, well, lots of instruction, kind of rules, kind of things that apply to uh, this this people's context about how to live that seem a bit irrelevant to us. But the point of them is, is that God wants to say, this is how to live in the world. This is how to be a people that honour me, but also flourish. And that was their context. But Jesus, in his ministry, as he begins it, after his time in the wilderness, he starts preaching. And one of the first things he says, he gives this Sermon on the Mount. And at the beginning of this sermon, we're not going to focus on it today, but it includes the Beatitudes. The reason we're not going to focus on it is because we did a whole series on it last year. But if you look at the the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, there are very famous statements. Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, and all these different things. They're repeated statements. And when you look at them and compare them to Moses' instruction, which begins with the Ten Commandments, there's so many similarities there. Jesus is saying, I'm the the true law. You want to know how to live in the world? I will tell you. And that's the context for the Sermon on the Mount and what we're going to get into uh, today. God is interested in teaching us about how to live in the world. And he says in this passage about being salt and light. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 and starting at verse 13. And we're going to have that read to us. Uh, on the video right now. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It occurred to me a few years ago that I didn't understand how a fridge worked. I don't know if you've ever had this thought. I mean, I say that not to sort of say that I understand how all the other appliances in my home work, but intuitively I I felt I understood the other things. You know, the things that created heat. 
I can kind of get it that electricity can be converted into heat. And if you have a flame, then you have heat. Those things made sense to me. But then it occurred to me one day, wait a minute, what is the force that encoldens things? I've never come across that before. How does that even work? And so I looked it up and sort of gained some knowledge. I still don't completely understand how it makes things colder, but there it is. Jesus didn't have that problem about understanding how fridges work. They just didn't have fridges. And therefore, they had a much bigger problem about how to preserve food. And specifically, um, one of the most important uh, foods and expensive foods was, was meat, and they wanted to make it last as long as, as possible. And, uh, and the, the solution to that was to use salt. And so the first thing I want to say about being salt, before we get into it, salt and, and light in the earth, in the world, we need to understand what Jesus was saying to his original hearers and what they would have heard when he said, you are the salt of the earth. Because that's a very famous uh, sentence, famous idea. But most of the time, we think of salt as something that adds flavor. And of course, that would have also been a, a purpose, a use of salt at G in Jesus' time. But primarily, they would have heard, wait a minute, salt stops things going bad. And before I get into today talking about what it means to be salt and light, I think we need to step back and think, well, why is Jesus even saying this? And really, what is Jesus saying about the world? If salt is used to stop things going bad, what can we conclude that what he's saying about the earth? He's kind of saying the earth is going bad. You are needed to be salt on the earth. Why? Because there's a deterioration that's happening. And even more, it's underlined with a second idea in this passage. You are the light of the world. And it talks about being a lamp and shining. You don't need lamps when there is already daylight. No, you need lamps when there's darkness. What is Jesus saying about the world? He's saying the world is deteriorating. It's going bad. The world is in darkness. It needs light to be brought to it. And if you've read the Gospels, you read other parts of what Jesus had to say, this actually isn't too surprising because Jesus' assessment about the world is very negative. In fact, he goes as far as to say in John 12, it says that Jesus describes the devil who's God's enemy and he calls him the ruler of this world. He's saying things are so bad in the world, it's as if God's enemy is actually calling the shots here. Things are that bad. And elsewhere in the, in, the, in the Bible, it talks about how this has happened through sin. That sin has entered the world and it's just corrupted and destroyed everything. And it's like the world has a terminal disease and it's called sin. Now that sounds quite stark and maybe you think, whoa, Jesus, you're going a bit far there. That's a bit too negative. But I think we do see the evidence of this. I mean, people, whether you're Christians or not, people are talking all the time about the deterioration of the natural world, primarily through human behavior. People are saying, well, the earth's resources are being used up. We're destroying the environment. We're destroying the atmosphere. The, the world itself 
the earth itself is getting worse. I think all of us also experience this personally. We feel and experience from time to time, as you get older, the fact that our physical bodies are deteriorating. This is not news you want to hear, I know. But it's true. I think you, you, you grow up as a child, you get bigger and stronger. And I think biologically speaking, I don't know what, it, what age quite it is, but there's a peak age of early 20s maybe where you're at your physical peak. The healthiness generally of you is as good as it could be. And then what happens is the aging process happens. And your health and beauty and everything just slips away. If you're over 25, you know what I'm talking about. Even if you try and do that. And I'll tell you, here's, here's, the, here's the killer point on this, because you think, no, nah, Matt, you're being too exaggerated. There are million pounds, multi-million pound industries that have been created to work against this inevitable decline. Anti-aging is what, we, is what people embrace all the time because there is this process that our bodies age, deteriorate. We feel it from time to time. We feel it more and more as we get old. And it, everyone dies. And you could say there's that dying process that happens. It does. It's not news we want to hear, but it happens. There is a deteriorating that is happening on the physical level. What about morally? Jesus is saying there's a deterioration happening. In the world. Well, what about people? What about morally? I don't think, in saying that things are deteriorating, I don't think Jesus is saying that you know, people today are worse than they were 2,000 years ago and they're worse than 2,000 years before that. I don't think he's saying necessarily people are getting worse than they were before. But I think what he's saying is there is a, a pulling down, a downward pull that happens in society uh, to people on a moral level, there's an inclination towards evil and what is not good and what is selfish. And again, I think we can sort of argue about this and say, well, some people are good, some people are evil. I, th- I think it happens to all of us. We all experience there is, a, there is a force that seems to be happening in us and we can see it in society that pulls us down towards the evil, t- down towards what the Bible would call sinful, what's wrong, what doesn't honour God. And I think we see this, and we think we particularly see it uh, in examples, and we've seen it recently more and more, where you know news stories lift a rock over here. What's been going on in secret? What's been going on in people's lives that they, didn't, they think they could get away with? And then it's brought into the light, and you think, oh, okay, that's what's happened. When people think they can do something in secret, do they choose to do what's good and right and honourable or is there a selfishness, abuse of power, grabbing things for ourselves, not treating others the way they should be treated? And we see that again and again and again in our society. That just happens and I think we experience it ourselves. We can't escape an inclination towards sin. There's part of us that wants to do what's wrong even though we might think, I want to do what's right in life. We can't escape this downward pull on us morally. And the Bible says that's because of sin. That's because we're all corrupted with this disease of sin that has entered into the world through our rejection of God. Wow, this is negative. (laughs) But you might say, Matt, well, it's not all bad though. Because we can say, well, the natural world, yes, we're destroying resources, but anyone who has experienced the 
beauty of the natural world and enjoy it thinking, wow, there's great things about the natural world. The natural world is incredible. We can enjoy it and see its beauty. It's not completely, it's not all bad. And also you could say in terms of society as well. You know, there, people talk of progress and the progress of humanity and things are, are getting better. In, in, and in many ways that is true. There is less poverty globally today than there was 50 years ago. There are more people with access to education than there were in the past. I saw a picture on Twitter the other day and uh, it was uh, a young woman holding up a sign like in a protest and on the sign it said, a lot of things are actually going pretty well. <laughs> and that's true. That's true. A lot, there is, you know, of course we don't, there are things that are not as good and not right and I'll get onto that, believe me I will. But actually many things are getting better. So how, you know, Jesus, you're being a bit over the top here. Well, how do, we, how do we fit this in? How do we understand this sort of good and evil in the world? Well, let me give this by way of illustration. Uh, a few months ago, I moved into a new house, and um, it was the first house that we, we bought. We've been renting up to now, um, me and my family, and uh, I was confronted with uh, the opportunity, the, the challenge, the prospect of having to buy curtains. And I don't know, I really think this room is divided into people that know what I'm talking about right now, who have bought curtains and those who haven't and that's yet to come. But let me give you, let me give you the benefit of my experience. Because you might think buying curtains, that's a very simple thing. You just measure the window and then you get the curtains that are that size. No, you do not do that because the curtains kind of fold a little bit and you have to get the curtains much bigger than the window. Okay, so all of you who have not yet had this experience, bear that in mind. Because I bought curtains that were too small. Um, <laughs> fortunately for me, the ones that we bought for our bedroom, my wife and myself, were okay. My three-year-old son, not so much. So, but he, he's not brought it up yet. He, he's, he doesn't seem too... <laughs> Doesn't seem too annoyed by it, but maybe that'll come at some time. But you, when, when you have this situation, you know, you draw the curtains at the end of it. They're not terrible, okay? They're not, they're, they, they cover, you know, most of the, of the window. But unfortunately, he's got a street lamp outside his window, which doesn't help the situation. But if you're ever in that experience, you're, you're trying to pull the curtains, and you pull it this side, and this side kind of comes, come, and the light from outside, you can't stop it coming in. You try and make it work, you try and pull it both ways, but there's light that just comes through. And any small little gap, the light comes through. May I suggest that is slightly how the world is. God in his goodness created the world and everything that there is that is good in the world comes from God and it shines out brightly with his light and his goodness and his grace and we can enjoy it and we can see it. We can't, we can't live life and not see it. We, exceed, we see it, we experience it. But the Bible says sin is like a curtain that's tried to cover everything with darkness. And it's covered over and we experience the darkness too, but the light still shines through. And that is, I suggest, how we can understand the Bible. It starts with God, it starts with His goodness, but sin has come in and tried to cover. And so we, we see the light and we see this darkness and we, that's, the, that's the way that we 
experience life. And you maybe agree with that biblical worldview or not. You may have one your own, but you need to have one to explain the evident, the, the evident experience of goodness and evil in the world. That's what Jesus is presenting. But let me move on now because, well, how do we respond to that? If that's the situation that Jesus is saying, this is, this is reality. Well, what is Jesus saying about us? And actually, he's saying something that's very positive. Because he's not saying the world's really bad, so just sit tight and I'll be back soon and everything will be okay. I'll just whisk you away. Actually, I think that's how many Christians mistakenly think about their earthly experience. They, they agree, you know, the world's covered with this darkness that's come in by sin, but we'll just sit tight and we'll just get through and then one day Jesus will come back and he'll take us into heaven and that'll be fine. But actually, A, that is, that is not what the Bible says about where history is going and where your life is going. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, your eternal destiny is not to be in heaven. That may come as a surprise to you. The Bible says, no, yes, when we die, if we die in Christ, we'll be with heaven, in heaven with Jesus. But he's not staying there. He is coming back and he's bringing all of heaven with him to the earth. And the Bible says there's a new heavens and earth, which is heaven and earth together and God together with his people in a tangible, real existence that we will experience with him. And that perspective is really important to have when we get into what it means to be salt and light in the world because it affects the way we think about our environment now. We need to think about this as being our home. Yes, it's affected by sin. But it's God's world. And God is coming back to renew it and restore it. And so we need to have that positive attitude with the impact that we can have in the world. And these kind of words are words that actually many of the sort of social causes that people outside of this church building but in this city have, this is a touching point where Jesus is very on board with those social causes in the world. If there are causes for good in the world where people are saying there's inequality there and that's not right, Jesus is saying yes. And we can point to passages like this that say exactly that. Yes, there's bad stuff in the world, but to just to leave it be, that's not Jesus' response. Jesus said, no, stuff needs to be done about that. Where there is the poor, where there is the vulnerable, where there is people that are being abused and exploited. Jesus is saying, work for good in those environments. Lift up the vulnerable. Give voice to those that don't have a voice. Jesus is proclaiming that. And so that is very much in the, in the spirit of our, our city, I think. And that's good. That's an example of God's common grace in the world that he's put in us something that says where there is evil, now we're going to fight against that. As difficult as it might be, we're going to stand up for what's right and what's good. You know, we talk a lot in society about influencers. Social media, this is something that's sprung up in the last few years. Just ordinary people that have huge social media follow, following and uh, people are influenced by them. 
Jesus has been talking about being influencer for the last 2,000 years. He said, if you're a follower of me, you're an influencer. You're a salt and you're a light in the world. Through what you do and what you say, I want you to have a positive impact. I don't want you to hide. I don't want you to just uh, step away from the world. You're salt in the world. You're light to the world. And actually, well, there's a few things going on here. I think the church in general is actually doing quite well on this front. I think even just take the present day in this country, the church does more for the social cause of good in this world, and well, this country certainly, than, than any other organization. I don't think you can argue with that. Because it's always been part of a Christian's identity to, to serve the poor, to stand up for what's right, to reach out with goodness as well as the gospel message. And I'll get on to talking about what it means to share the gospel message. And of course, that is part of what Jesus is saying here. But sometimes I think even as Christians, we can, we can say, well, it's just about sharing the good news and just about telling people about Jesus. Yeah, that is part of it. I'll expand on that more in a minute. But it's also about influencing the world for good. I said a minute ago that um, we moved into our new place a few months ago, and it was the first place that we have bought. And your attitude to somewhere where you've bought is very different than when you're just renting. When we've been renting, you kind of, in terms of decoration, that sort of thing, you think, well, we're just going to be here for a few years. It's not worth investing here because, you know, we'll move on. And what's the, what's the point? But now we own somewhere. And not only do we own somewhere, we have a garden. And so a few weeks ago, the weather turned slightly warmer, get out there. I was out there clearing the weeds out and all those sorts of things you have to do. Because this is my garden. This is my home. My attitude to it, I want to change it. I want to make it look good. I want to influence it for good so I can enjoy it. And I think there's something of that that God wants us to have for the world. It's not sin's world, it's God's world. And if it's God's world and he's welcomed us into his family, then it's our world. And so just to shrug our shoulders when we see evil and just let it happen and think, oh, well, not my problem. We've been brought into the one who owns it all. And actually, as I said before, this is where we're going to be forever. We'll temporarily be with Jesus in heaven. But when he comes back, we'll be, the Bible says, we'll be ruling and reigning the world with him. Wow, what a destiny. And I think that perspective helps us to respond in the here and now in a way that Jesus wants us to respond. Let me get into some practicals here because I can talk very big picture and you might think, well, what does that mean? What are you saying for me to do, Matt? Are you saying you know, we need to jump on the bandwagon of big social and moral causes and, and that sort of thing? Well, maybe. Maybe that's something that we could get more involved in. Maybe that's something for you, but I think it starts with the environment that you are in. And I want you to think about your family life, your friendship group, your work life or your study life or any environment that you are in. You are there, Jesus said, if you're a follower of him, a salt and light to stop the deterioration that otherwise will happen because of sin. 
And this can be very, very small, but just by being a Christian and living your life in a way that is following Jesus and making decisions because he's a priority in your life is part of what it means to be salt and light in the world. If, say, in a workplace scenario, if people in your office or something don't swear around you because they know you're a Christian, that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. If, the, if you're a part of a team and the people make decisions and think twice about making a decision that would be immoral or bending the rules because they know you're a, a Christian and a person of integrity, if they think twice about it, that's a good thing. That is influencing just by being who you are because this is an identity thing. Let me underline that. Jesus doesn't say here, I want you to try and be soul in the earth. And if it's a little bit difficult, nah, don't worry about it. No, he's saying, you are salt. If you are a follower of me, I've changed your identity and I've come into your life and therefore you influence because I influence. My light is in you and it will shine out. And that's why we talk in this church so much about being a bless, or having a blessed culture. Beginning with prayer, listening to people, eating with them, serving, sharing our story. And it happens in that order. We want to tell people about Jesus. But we also want to get alongside people. And so if, whether it's in your friendship group or your work life or your family life, being that person that befriends the person who no one is friends with or forgiving people even though they've wronged you, or serving them, being the first to step out and serve and bless and be generous and inviting other people into your home. Those actions are good. And they're part of what it means to influence your environment for good. You know, you might have been part of a, you know, what people talk about a sort of toxic work environment where relationships between your team and your work with or even your friendship group or your family Things can get difficult. And is that you experience the bitterness of that downward spiral that happens. Jesus is saying, no, you, you can step in there. You can be the first to not hold grudges, but bless and forgive and be kind and encourage and change that atmosphere for good. Because this comes also with a warning. It says, Jesus says, you can lose your, your saltiness and you're not good for anything. It's not automatic. We, have to, we do have to step into it. We do have to recognize who Jesus has made us to be if we're followers of him and step in it and take that opportunity. And it's not easy. I'm not saying this is, you know, and when you live this way and when you do your work or your study or whatever with integrity and with honesty because you know you're doing it for Jesus and when you seek to reconcile people and you seek to uh, bless other people, I'm not saying that's going to be always well received. Sometimes by be doing the right thing and standing up for what is right and what is good and what is moral, you will face challenge and difficulty and opposition. That Jesus also promised that as well. In this life, you will have trouble, but he's, it's something he's called us to be. The darkness doesn't want it sometimes. 
But it's right to stand for what is good. And in our generation, there are huge, huge moral questions that are going around right now in society and they face the church as well. And I think this warning speaks into that so clearly. Are we going to be people that do the right thing and do and say what God says even when it's unpopular? Because it's interesting to me what Jesus says about what happens if we lose our saltiness, we lose our distinctiveness, we just act and say what other people do and say as well. We get walked over. And let me say this, I think some portions of the church, in the church in a wider context, I would say, have done exactly what Jesus says for them not to do. They've heard what the world has to say and they've lost the distinctiveness and said, and they're seeking to be relevant. They've said, oh, well, the Bible doesn't say that. We can embrace that. But Jesus says, when you do that, when you lose your distinctiveness, you just get walked over anyway. What, what, what importance does the church have if it's just going to reflect the views of everyone else in society? I'm saying, I'm talking about serving and loving, but also standing for what is good and what is right. And I'm not forcing that agenda. I'm just saying, when it comes, because you will face those moral questions and you will face those decisions that you have to make. Am I going to do the right thing? Am I going to say, no, I believe this because this is what God says, or I'm just going to go along with what everyone else says? You have that decision. And Jesus said, no, you are there to stop. The progression of sinful ideas that serve the self and don't honour God. We've got to stand on what he says is right and what is good. And the reason we do that, one, because Jesus says it's right, but two, because it has power. Because then it is light shining out in the darkness. And that's what it says, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is light that's come into our lives if we are Christians that shines out. And I've said it can come when we, when we live this way. It can come with opposition and challenge to us, but also it does shine out as well. And it turns heads. And the Bible says when that happens, always have a reason for the hope that you have. When people think twice about what they do and they say, Matt, you don't do what everyone else does. And why did you make that decision? And, you know, why don't you just go along with what other people do? And their heads turn, you can say, because I've been transformed by Jesus. I can forgive other people because I've been forgiven by God. I've got a capacity to love other people because I've been loved by God and his capacity to love is beyond my imagination. I can serve others because Jesus has already served me. That's what it means to shed the, bring the light as well as the, the, the salt, as it were, the goodness, the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus said so many times in the gospel that he is the light of the world. In John 9 verse 5, he adds a little bit to that that I think really helps us to understand what he's saying there. He says, as long as I am in the world, says Jesus, I am the light of the world. Implication, when I ascend back into heaven, now my people are the light to bring the truth to the world that needs it. 
And sometimes we have to stand in opposition to the world and say, no, God says something different. But there's power in that. And there's truth in that that will prevail. So don't lose your saltiness. Don't hide your light. And let me just finish with this. Because we've talked about what Jesus is saying about the world and we've talked about what he's saying about us. But also, what does this passage say about what God is like? Because I started off by saying, well, Jesus seems very negative about the world. Yeah, he's, he's telling us to do something about it, but how is Jesus reacting? How is God reacting? Well, Jesus calls us to be salt and light, and anywhere in the Bible, God doesn't call us to be something that he isn't already. And actually, Jesus is the true salt that stands in the way of sin and takes it upon himself and defeats it. And he is the true light that brings truth to sinful, corrupt ideas. And so Jesus' attitude to the world is maybe surprising to us. If we really understand this, that Jesus, sin has covered the whole world. And God is good and holy. So how does God respond to it? God loves the world. What? This, the world is evil, but God loves the world. And to help me understand this, and maybe help you understand something else that recently I didn't get, I'd heard the words, but didn't really understand the difference. It's the difference between diagnosis and prognosis. When you have a diagnosis, that's about what the situation is right now. You know, something's wrong. The doctor says, this is a diagnosis. It's what's going on right now. And Jesus' diagnosis of the world is terminal. It's terminal. Very negative. But normally when you have a negative very bad diagnosis, you also have a very negative prognosis. Prognosis is a prediction. What's going to happen going forward from this point onwards because of what the situation is? And you might think, well, Jesus is saying the world has got this terminal disease called sin. So what's the prognosis? What's the, what can we be hopeful of looking forward? We can be hopeful of much. Jesus' prognosis is perfection. Where's the world going? Is it just going to descend and get worse and worse and worse? Jesus said, no, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to bring my goodness, to bring my reconciliation, to bring my restoration, renewal. And there's something that's amazing and wonderful about recreation. It's taking what is broken and not just fixing it, but restoring it to even greater than it was before. That's what God is saying about where history is going. So there's no reason for Christians to look at the sin in the world and just shake their head and they are. No, we say, yes, it's bad. But Jesus is working in the world through his people and that will continue and continue, bringing good and bringing light and bringing life until Jesus comes again and that will be the end of that process and all things will be restored and all point to the glory of Jesus. That's where it's going. That's what it's all about. And so we can have that attitude in the world. No, I know where history is going. Yes, things are dark. Yes, things are bleak, it seems. But the way, because Jesus has come and he's come into my life, I can shine out. And the final thing I want to say is to answer the objection that's probably rising up in hearts even now that says, but Matt, I'm aware of the, 
the deterioration in my life. I'm aware of this sinful inclination that pulls me down and drags me down. And I think that is something that affects all of us. And I think it certainly affects those who campaign for the cause of good in the world without Christ. Because even then, you're trying to be good and trying to have a positive impact in the world. But you're still racked with self-doubt and guilt. Am I doing enough? And even the most uh, proactive people in the force for good in the world can be the most people. They, I'm, I'm not adequate. I'm aware of my weakness and I'm aware of my hypocrisy and guilt even. How do we deal with that? How does Jesus deal with it? I've already said, Jesus said, be salt in the world. Stop the rot that's going on. I say, well, who's going to stop the rot in my life? And the answer is just the same, Jesus Christ. Because he has come into the world so that our sin is not a terminal diagnosis. It's not the end of the story. Because I'm, I'm calling you to act and I'm calling you to do and say and speak in a way that's full of hope. But I do that not suggesting that any of us are qualified in and of ourselves or any of us have freed ourselves from sin. No, we can be hypocritical in some respects and know sin and darkness in our own lives. But we know we've also been forgiven by Jesus. And because Jesus came into the world to die for the sin of the world, that whoever believes in him will have life and light and forgiveness and the love of God I look upon this room and I think this is a room of transformed people. And our hope in changing the world and having impact, and maybe it's small and maybe it's big, our hope is not in your gifts and ability, it's in the fact that Jesus has come and he's the one that if he changes you, he can change the things around you as well. Because it takes a transformed people to transform the world. And that is exactly what Jesus has come to do. And so our weakness, our sin, it's not a disqualifier because we come to Jesus and receive mercy and forgiveness and he picks us up and says, now go again, be my people. And that transformation that's happened to you, show that love and show that light and speak of how you have been changed. You know, there's a phrase that gets banded around when it comes to stuff like this, of be the change you want to see in the world. And, and Jesus says, yes, be that change you want to See in the world, but also speak of the one who's already changed you. Because that's the best message that you have. And the most hope that you have, Jesus has changed my life. I'm not perfect, but he's forgiven me and he's restored me and he's set, given me a purpose and a destiny. And that's what you can share. And that's what you can speak about. And that's the reason for the hope that you have. And the reason to live a transformed life. And all glory, as this passage says, all glory goes to the God who has come to bring change and bring transformation. That people might see our good deeds. And what we do and what we say, and it all points to God. Who through the gospel and through sending a son has brought light to our lives. And transformation to our world. Let me pray for us. Father God, I so thank you that you look upon us in the world and your verdict was not one of saying, well, get just to get rid of it all and cast us all off, even though that's what we deserve. None of us qualified in our own standing before you. But Jesus, you came into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might have life through you. And I pray that if there's even anyone in here today, 
that feels the weight of their sin and think, I can't even begin to bring about change. I say, Jesus, would you change them first? Change each one of us that we might be examples of the transformation that you've come to bring about and shine, your gospel would shine so brightly through each one of us. In your name we pray, amen.